Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio, and our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwall. This week, we're going to focus on principals, actually high school principals, whose jobs have been made enormously more challenging by the pandemic. That's an understatement. They don't get enough attention or credit in general, since they're the ones most responsible for carrying out the policies and the decisions that superintendents and school boards adopt. Much of the success or failure of distance learning and the return to school falls on them. They're also the ones, Lewis, who are most in touch with teachers and parents and, of course, students. Everyone's feeling tense these days and put upon by the effect of COVID-19 on schools and their lives. Later, we'll speak with the principal of Beckman High in Tustin Unified in Orange County. That's one of the first and largest high schools so far to bring students back on campus. They are employing what's called a hybrid model where kids attend school half of the week and do distance learning the other half. We'll ask him how he managed the many challenges it took to reopen. But first, the closing of schools in the spring demanded a quick response from school administrators. John Rogers and his colleagues at UCLA have reached out to principals to see how they managed the crisis of school closings. They've prepared a report that underscores the unprecedented challenges that they face and continue to face. We're pleased to have John Rogers with us. He's a professor of education at UCLA. Welcome, John. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, John, tell us what were some of the things that really jumped out at you from this survey that surprised you, perhaps? The first thing that that struck me was the ways in which public schools were reaching out and meeting the extraordinary social needs of communities amidst the pandemic. So more than half of principals here in California and across the nation reported that they made efforts to meet the needs of students who are experiencing housing insecurity. 90% of principals talked about providing meals to students. And this was no easy task given the fact that their cafeterias were shut down, they couldn't bring students onto campus. Perhaps even more striking was that two thirds of principals said that they provided meals to family members of students as well. I think the most poignant data point in terms of the ways in which schools were meeting community needs was that more than 40% of principals here in California said that they had provided counseling to young people who had experienced death in their families due to the coronavirus. How did principals respond to the various kinds of things they were called upon, I mean, being a grief counselor, financial help, things that they don't necessarily train for, John? Is it, uh, what were they feeling after having to do all this on top of their job running a school? I think principals, like many of us, felt extraordinarily stretched. I reached out to some of, of the principals I work with closely just to get a sense of how many emails they were getting every day. And the high school principals I talked with mentioned that they were working through, say, 150 emails every day. Now, they were doing this even as they were spending every waking hour meeting with teachers, meeting with parents, meeting with individual students. And sometimes these same principals had their own kids underfoot because their kids were home and out of school. This was not an easy task, but principals stepped up and largely met these new demands in ways that really reflected a deep commitment. 
One of the things I was struck by was that more than half of principals reported that they did home visits to try to connect with students who they had had difficulty making contact with. I know one principal in East LA had made those home visits himself. He wasn't going to send out his staff. He thought it was important that he lead from the front. And so you saw in that this, this deep sense of commitment, this sense that they needed to be community leaders at this moment. That number jumped out at me too, John, because that was just something that I hadn't seen reported. And because all one heard about is the reluctance of folks to go back to school, but not actually doing home visits. I found that was an extraordinary statistic. I think that's right. And I know from talking to principals that even those that were not doing home visits were oftentimes out distributing laptops or iPads and hotspots. They were engaged in these in-person meetings at times when it it wasn't clear how safe that was. And, And yet they were taking on that risk and oftentimes, as I say, getting out in front of the issue themselves. John, we're talking about the reopening of schools again, and now it brings up another dynamic, the politics of reopening and all the pressures that principals will face. Should we be worrying that principals may say, this is not what I signed up for, it's too much, and some of them may just either retire or just go do something else? I was struck by the fact that some principals around the country reported that a lack of social trust in their community made it very difficult to do the work. Now, in some cases, that was social discord over what should happen in terms of public health rules. In Arizona, a principal mentioned that she had her students graduate virtually, and yet someone from her community could go down and walk into the local bar and watch that graduation ceremony at the bar because the CDC rules applied to schools, but not to bars. And she said, this makes our work that much tougher. And so the extent to which we are not all on the same page, the extent to which principals don't feel like they have the backing of political officials and that they can't rely upon public health guidance makes the task of reopening that much more difficult. Talking with John Rogers, professor of education at UCLA. John, you did this survey in the spring, which now seems like almost a lifetime away. Why do you think that what you learned then from that survey is still relevant today? I think part of what we saw in the spring are the ways that pervasive and long-standing inequalities played out as schools transitioned to remote instruction and the ways in which some of those inequalities continued to present obstacles to meaningful learning even after schools had made extraordinary efforts to try to remediate some of those challenges. So we saw, for example, that high poverty schools were far more likely in California to have large numbers of students lacking either the devices themselves or the connectivity in order to participate meaningfully in remote instruction. It took some time, but eventually more and more schools were able to provide more students with full access. And yet, even after schools made these extraordinary efforts, there still were many schools, and particularly high poverty schools and rural schools in California, that were not able to say that they had all students able to participate fully. I think we're at a moment where we need to say what seems to be obvious, that access to 
connectivity and broadband needs to be seen as a fundamental educational right in the 21st century. Are there any sort of best practices, any advice for principals that emerged from the study? I know that wasn't the focus, but you work with principals. So, so any thoughts as to how a principal can manage this extraordinarily complex situation and remotely? You know, I think when we think of principals, we think of, you know, the, the best principals are the ones who are not sitting in the office, they're walking around on their school campuses. But now so many of them are behind closed doors in front of a computer. Well, it's interesting, Lewis. I would say that the best practices reflect what you just said. The principles that were most efficacious tried various different strategies to reach out to students and reach out to students that were hard to contact. And so one principal I work with in South Los Angeles took out ads in social media to let parents know what her school was doing so that those parents knew that their children could access the tablets and the hotspots that they otherwise wouldn't know about. The best and most efficacious principals sought out and had regular meetings with students, with faculty members, with members of the community so that they could be in constant communication and people would know what was going on. And so that that sense of, of the principal walking the hallways they were doing this virtually when they were doing it powerfully. Thank you, John Rogers, Professor of Education at UCLA, for this very interesting study. For those of you who want to find it, you can, of course, go online, you know, Google Learning Lessons, U.S. Public High Schools and the COVID-19 Pandemic in Spring 2020. Thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you, John. Nice to be here. Now, with the fall semester well underway, principals are facing perhaps an even bigger challenge, creating the conditions to bring students and staff safely back to school in an expanding number of districts around the state. We're going to go now to Orange County, which is the epicenter in California for school reopening. About 10 of the county's 28 districts have already opened for in-person instruction in some form or another and more are scheduled to do so in the next week or two. We have on the line with us Dr. Donnie Rafter. He's the principal of Beckman High School. That's a large high school with almost 3,000 students in Tustin, which is near Irvine, for those of you not familiar with the area. Welcome, Donnie. Hi, thanks for having me. So you are one of the first high schools in California that's actually brought kids back to school in significant numbers. How many students have you actually brought back out of the almost 3,000? So we have roughly a third, a third, and a third, and I'll explain that. So a third of our kids opted to go to distance learning. And what they're able to do is zoom into classes live every day. The other two-thirds are split into two groups. So a third of our kids are here on campus Monday and Thursday, and then another third are here Tuesday and Friday. When they're on campus, they're going to their classes. They have six periods, 40 minutes each. They have 10-minute passing periods. And so they move through their day kind of like a normal high school schedule. When they're off campus or distance learning, they're Zooming in with the same schedule. So they're attending those, those classes, like I said, at the same time as if they were in person. Well, that sounds pretty complicated. Wait, so are the students moving from class to class or are they staying in one class with the teachers coming to them? So the students who are here on campus do move from class to class. 
And to keep it as safe as we can, we really, the total bodies we have on campus in terms of students, it's about 720 kids on campus right now. They all wear masks. Actually, we've had to set up kind of traffic flow where kids all go in the same direction so that they're not like crossing paths with each other. And so, yeah, the ones who are here actually travel from class to class. So a number of principals and superintendents I've spoken to have said it's too complicated to do high school. The logistics are impossible. So it sounds like you've tried to simplify it by having all students either present or watching it via the internet. And so you didn't have to set up a completely different structure for those who stayed home. Did you review these options, decide that this one was the one that worked best or the only one that is really practical? Actually, yes, we we did. And they're right. The model that we went with is probably the simplest. Back in July, when we were looking at this, this hybrid model, we were talking about options and what it was going to look like and trying to figure out ways to balance classes. And in high school, because kids have multiple classes and they all have different courses that they're taking to balance out classes is, I don't want to say an impossible task, but a near impossible task. Luckily, we have the ability to, and the technology for kids to Zoom in remotely. And so as soon as that became an option, what that did is when 30% of our kids initially said, hey, I want to stay remote, that now made it a lot easier for us to balance out classes in person so that we stayed under about 18 is the highest that we wanted. But most classes run in the you know, 8 to 10 kid in person, in seat range from day to day. Was it difficult to persuade the teachers to go along with a live stream? Because in some districts, I hear, teachers really don't like that idea. Yeah, you know, traditionally live streaming is something that isn't really accepted by a lot of teachers. We were really fortunate that our teachers union and our school administration, our district administration, were able to come together. And I think the idea of live streaming, if you looked at the other options that were available, Live streaming actually made it a lot easier for teachers, a lot easier for kids, was simpler to plan for and understand. And the teachers agreed to it, I think, fairly early on in the process. The other concern is that a large percentage of teachers, whether for health concerns or otherwise, really don't want to go back in the classroom. How did it play out in your district? We had a few that that were worried, that were scared. Our district HR people had a series of conversations with staff, had them submit requests, had them submit doctor's notes. And actually, our, our HR department went through and vetted out, okay, this, you know, here's the line that we're drawing. The teachers who have legitimate health concerns, documented health concerns, were given an option to reverse live stream in. So essentially, we have four teachers on our campus out of about 115 teachers who are now, instead of the teacher being in person, the teacher is essentially zooming into the classroom. And so the kids who are at home, there's really no difference because they were zooming anyway. The kids who are in class now are seeing a a teacher on a screen instead of a body. And it's not ideal. It's not perfect. But it's a heck of a lot better than having a sub who, who doesn't know math or doesn't know Spanish teaching the class. So that's how we've been able to work our way around that. Well, how is it going then? You're now in your third week, end of the third week. How how's it gone? It started off, there was a lot of fear, a lot of you know, worry about the unknown. And, and I'm going to tell you, it's, it's hard. It's hard on the teachers. Every kid I've talked to, and I try to get out and talk to kids quite a bit, the kids who are here are thankful, they're grateful, they want to be here. Even the ones at home are appreciative of the fact that they have this option and they have the ability to stay home and, and be safe if they're nervous. 
and still have, you know, their Beckman teachers, they're in class with their Beckman peers, even though it is remote. The first week, like I said, it, it was difficult. We knew though, we tried to set the teachers up with this, I don't want to say a low bar, but hey, you guys are going to screw up. Like it's, it's going to happen. Like that is supposed to, it's supposed to happen. And don't worry about it. Nobody's out trying to write you up. Nobody's out trying to go after you. Like, hey, you're going to do the best that you can and we're going to learn. And so as we're moving into the third week, we're starting to feel, I guess, a little more at ease. You can feel it in the teachers. You can feel them like just breathing a little bit more. I actually, my wife is a teacher as well. She's an elementary school teacher. And, you know, the hours the teachers are putting in right now, like it's, it's tough, man. It's not easy. But given the circumstances, you know, I think our situation is actually a, a pretty good one relative to some other places. We're talking with Donnie Rafter, principal at Beckman High School in Tustin near Irvine. You know, one of the issues that have come up is that these kids are just going to socialize. I mean, high school students, college students, you can't control that. How is that working out? Oh, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> you know, we look at everything as everything that we've put in place is essentially a layer of safety, of, of protection, right? Everything has holes in it, right? Everything... Like every kid wears a mask here. We have face shields, we have sanitizing, we have all this stuff going on. And so all these different layers hopefully add to the security and the safety. The hardest thing is keeping high school kids away from each other. We set our schedule up to have lunch be the last part of the day. We have a grab and go lunch format with the idea being that they're gonna take their lunch off campus and they're gonna leave. And the reality of it is, and, and you guys walk your neighborhoods I'm sure and see that you know kids outside of school, they're hanging out with each other. They're doing what they're going to do. Now, we have noticed socially, like the groups are definitely smaller. The friend groups that we've, we used to see of 15 to 20 kids hanging out together at lunch or after school, it's definitely smaller. But yeah, on campus, it's really hard to keep them separate and keep the space. I have to ask you about just testing. That is a real issue uh, because uh, these kids could be asymptomatic and they could, could be positive for the, for the virus. Are you doing any testing for the students or the staff? No, we, we don't have a testing testing here on campus. Having gone through this, what kind of advice would you give to other districts and principals who are thinking about going back? It's hard being a leader in these times. Like being in any kind of leadership role is tough. I think we've just had to really stop and be patient with people as much as possible because people are under a lot of stress. And honestly, some people who normally are so low key and low maintenance and low needs are just they're not themselves. So we've really had to just give a ton of grace, be there with a smile, support, not take anything personally. In terms of planning, it's it's been tough. We've put a ton of time in planning before they, they come on campus, but we still, we weren't gonna figure out every situation that was gonna occur. Something's bound to happen that we didn't plan for because this is new, nobody's done this before. There is no book on it. So like I said, just giving ourselves, our staff, our teachers, like just patience, I think has been, <laughs> the best advice I could give anybody. Okay, well, we've been talking with Dr. Downey Rafter. He's principal of Beckman High School in Tustin near Irvine. Well, I think all of California can learn from your experience and look forward to staying in touch with you and see how all of this unfolds. All right, thank you guys. Let me know if you need anything else and have a good day. Well, John, that was super interesting. Uh, what was your general impression? Well, I think it's a really important model. I'm not sure it's going to work everywhere. I think in some counties and districts with higher rates of COVID infections, there'll be a resistance from more teachers to return to school. 
most of them can return to Tustin. And I, I think subs everywhere will be a, a problem. And I was talking to Rick Miller, who is the president of the school board in Rockland Unified and Rockland High has a different approach. They don't broadcast from the classroom to students at home while they're teaching the kids in the classroom. They have separate operations for students who want to do distance learning and only those who are willing to, to try it and come back with a hybrid. So it's more complicated. So I don't know. We're going to have to see how it all shakes out. But it's good to see some districts going ahead. So at least we have something to compare it with at this point. What do you think, Lewis? I don't know. I'm still a little apprehensive about whether it's really safe to bring students back. And uh, we're just going to have to see. I was, I did note that Donnie Rafter, they don't do real testing. They don't do any testing, really. I think it obviously you're taking some risks. I think that's a great point. That's Orange County. And, and you don't have to go far, get to Los Angeles County. It's a non-starter to say there'll be no testing and contact tracing. And this is going to become more and more of an issue across the, the whole state. As districts now, John, and I, th I don't think there's been enough attention focused on this, is that only 10 of the 58 counties in California are in the so-called Tier 1 purple zone. Virtually every school district now in the state is able to open for in-person instruction or will be able to do so really in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I think we, we're showing, Lewis, that it's really different when it comes to high schools. There are districts that will start off with younger grades, but I think high schools are more complex. It's hard to keep students observing social distancing in high school, and so they'll be the last students to go back. Well, one thing's for sure, John, many more schools will be bringing kids back, and there's going to be lots of permutations. And what's so interesting right now is that we don't really know what's happening across the state. CDE doesn't have those figures. Uh, we, we try to put them together to really get a sense of what's happening across the state, and it's not clear. You know, a year ago, we knew where kids were. Right now, we really don't. That's local control, which means that nobody knows anything what anyone else is doing. It may overstate it just a tad, but certainly in this environment with things changing so fast that there's a lot of unknowns. And on that uncertain note, we're going to wrap it up. For this week's podcast, our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Be well. Stay safe. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>